as long as there have been financial advisors, there has been debate about how to plug the advice gap. But research has found that some 39 million people have never sought any professional advice or guidance for their finances, and one in five advisors won't serve someone with less than £100,000. So there is clearly a gap to be plugged. But does the plugging of it necessarily fall to advisors, and what role do providers have to play? I'm Damien Fantato, Digital Editor of FT Advisor, and with me to discuss this are Jamie Jenkins, Director of Policy at Royal London, and Prakash Chandramohan, Strategy Director at Tizer. Hello both. Hi, Damien. So, uh, Prakash, can we start with you, if we may? Uh, how much of the advice gap is made of people who do you think genuinely need advice, and how much is made up of people who really just need a bit more help? Yeah, Damien, I mean, there's an important nuance contained in your question. And that nuance is that we don't just have an advice gap problem in the UK, but we've got a support gap problem as well. You know, so there are millions of people who are not getting, not even seeking any formal support to make a saving and investment decision. And the FCA, they updated their figures in December last year as to the size of the advice and the support gap. And as you mentioned, Damien, they, they said that there are 30, 38, 39 million people who are not getting any formal support. And of those 38, 39 million people, they estimated that 8.4 million people had 10,000K of investable assets. So I guess to, to come back to your question, you know, how many people genuinely need advice? Well, I think it's a good chunk of those 8.4 million people because they're the ones not seeking any support, but they actually have assets to invest. And in terms of how many people just need a bit more help, I think the number is vast. It's going to be 38 to 40 million people. You know, even people who get advice actually will likely benefit from you know, more support from their product providers. Um, we've recently conducted some research on how confident people are in terms of making investment decisions. And, and we found that you know, one in two uh, feel they have low confidence to make an investment decision. And then we asked, okay, what is driving that lack of confidence? And people said that they don't know enough about their options. They feel overwhelmed by the number of products available. They find it all too complex and confusing. They don't know where to start. So those were all the really harsh realities for for people who aren't getting any formal support. So we feel that actually there, there is a vast, vast number, tens of millions of people who who are not getting enough support. Mm. And Jamie, what do you think? Royal London's done a bit of done research into this recently, I believe, haven't you? We have. We've over the years really we've done successive pieces of research at Royal London and I think um it's I mean fairly consistent with what's just been said there, I think we, we see a large gap, which is both advice and guidance, if we call it that. I suppose it's important to say that, you know, the distinction between guidance and advice is something that we, the industry and the regulators have produced, if you like. It's not something that customers understand or consumers sit and think about. I don't think there are many people out there that think, I just need guidance or I actually need advice. You know, I need, I need the thing that's defined as advice. You know, people don't think in those terms. So, but we do see a, a huge demand for some sort of help, which may materialise as advice ultimately, or it might start as guidance and might, at a later point in somebody's life, 
become a need for advice. But but similar to, to Prakash, I think what we're seeing is quite a large number of reasons why people don't seek it out. And in some cases, it's simply the unwillingness to talk about money. Um, Prakash, Tizer has um, published a report this month which uh, shows that some consumers um, a few consumers just want more a more personalised service from their from providers, um, which could go some way towards uh, addressing this issue. What role do you think that um, this sort of thing, a more personalised service from providers, would have in in filling the advice gap? Um, Damien, we think that personalisation has a massive massive role to play to to support consumers. We don't think that the industry is getting through to consumers. I think other industries are getting through, <laughs> other consumer-facing industries are getting through, but not the financial services industry. And we feel that personalization is the way to get through to consumers. I mean, let, let me give you an example. Let's say you know, you've got a platform customer, you know, bought a fund 10 years ago, it was top quartile then. For the last five years, the fund has been lagging. It's actually not even providing very good value anymore. The customer is completely unaware. They, they do not have one iota of knowledge of, of these issues. And wouldn't it be amazing if the platform could alert the consumer you know, to this issue and give them like a menu of similar funds that offer better value? I mean, that shouldn't be a crime. I mean, consumers are, are used to hyper-personalization from the Amazons, the Netflixes, the Googles, etc. And they actually have that expectation from all their service providers now. That's what our research showed. The other thing that our, our research showed is that people actually trust their financial services provider to make the best use of the data they hold on them. You know, the majority of people we found actually expect their bank, their building society, their platform to proactively use the data they hold on them to make savings investments simpler and easier for them. And what we found is that there was about 60 to 70% of people actually said they, they wanted more personalization. And why? Why did they want more personalization? They said that it would give them greater confidence to select a product. It would be a reliable way to make a decision. It would motivate them to select a new product. And a really, really interesting one was it, they said that it would motivate them to actually speak to a financial professional. And we've always had this hypothesis that the more informed you make the consumer, you know, the more likely they're going to pick up the phone and, and seek advice from a professional. And without personalization, they just don't know what their problems are. You know, are they investing enough? Is their asset allocation right? Are they using their tax wrappers properly? You know, is their investment choice tax efficient? All these are really, really difficult problems for, for anyone to solve by themselves. And if you don't have personalized support, well, you, you're just left with no clue and people feeling overwhelmed and you just can't figure out things themselves. So to, to answer your question, Damien, we actually think that personalization is the way forward. It has a massive role to, to play to inform consumers. What do you think, Jamie? Yeah, I'd agree, I'd agree with that. I think the, the key to this is that we impress upon the industry a culture of helping customers rather than selling them things or marketing to them. And that's where I think one of the regulator's understandable concerns comes from. 
in allowing providers to do more than they, they currently do. But I agree that we should, we should be able to use data now and personalize it and use it in a way that is genuinely there to help customers make better decisions. The risk aversion now that's developed across the industry, the risk aversion in terms of the fear of crossing that advice boundary or being seen to lead a customer to a particular outcome when they're not qualified or authorized to do so, has actually left a huge void for customers who simply want an answer to a simple question or a steer on what best to do. And that void has been filled, sadly, by scammers and criminals and people running high-risk investments who do not care about the advice boundary or crossing that line or any possible repercussions, because in most cases there are very little in the way of repercussions for the activities they're undertaking. So that's a real problem. And it feels like you know we've, we've left this void through our fear of doing the wrong thing by the good actors, shall we put it, in society. And the bad actors have stepped in and filled that gap. And that's a real problem. I was just going to say, I mean, Jamie makes a really, really good point there about how uh, consumers are, are turning to scams, high-risk investments, highly volatile investments. And what that's showing is that the traditional industry is, is not getting through. I mean, when we, when we did this research, I listened to a lot of the discussions with the consumer focus group. And uh, I, I actually didn't hear one person talk about the virtues of compound interest or the virtues of a risk-targeted you know, diversified fund. I, I didn't hear that at all, actually. Um, and in the industry, you sort of you expect that you know that message is going to get through to consumers, but it clearly it was clear to me that it's not getting through. Mm -hmm. Kimmy, what do you think? There's been a lot of debate about, you know, the, the advice guidance barrier. What, what do you think the regulatory barriers are, if any, to uh, offering a more personalised service as, as a provider? Yeah, I think, I mean, to me, again, I go back to this point of culture. So we, we should be focused on the culture of an organisation, what it's trying to do and how it's trying to help customers first and foremost. Now, I realise it's too really a definition to say, well, that's your that's your definition of guidance or, or, or advice. Just just do the right thing. But I think it should, it's a good starting point. I then think, you know, actually advice is very well defined. I don't think there's actually a an issue there in terms of how, you know, the, the environment within which advisors operate. There are certainly issues around um, the costs of that environment and things that could be done to simplify it and costs associated with the levies they have to pay. And that that's certainly true. But in terms of the definition of advice, that seems pretty clear. I think what's, I think we should almost approach it from the other side, which is the guidance boundary. So not the advice boundary. I know it sounds like two sides of the same thing, but are there things that are almost rules of thumb that we could talk to customers about comfortably in the absence of doing, you know, full fact finds and, and getting into the nitty gritty of their, their financial circumstances? And there are some. So that's not about saying you should buy this product with this provider or invest in this fund. That's not that, but it might be more about, you know, the, the angles around the, the implications of investing in cash and telling, telling them a bit more about the kind of alternatives. It might be talking to them about what typical withdrawal rates might be in retirement. I mean, things like that, which at the moment could constitute a breach of that advice, you know, could, could step you into the advice sphere when actually all you're trying to do is give a fairly 
generic picture of some good sound principles that people might adhere to. So I think we should seek to stretch the guidance boundary rather than seek to change the advice boundary, if, if you understand that distinction. Mm -hmm. Sure. So you think there are any particular regulatory barriers, if any, to a more personalised service? Yeah, I mean, Damon, we're doing a lot of uh, work on this with the FCA and Treasury at the moment. I mean, the two big barriers to firms offering more personalised help, you know, one is the definition of advice. And I agree with Jamie that the definition of advice actually works for the advice part of the market, but not for the providers who want to provide more support. So the definition of advice makes it really difficult for a firm to take personal circumstances into account when providing help and support. The other barrier is that if a firm delivers a personalized communication to a consumer, well, Mifford says that the firm needs to run an appropriateness test on the individual you know, before allowing them to act on that personalized communication. And that's a really old archaic rule where the firm needs to check the skills, qualifications of the individual, which is really unpractical, you know, fraught with issues, especially in this digital day and age. So we, we're working very closely with the FCA and Treasury on how these barriers can be removed for firms wishing to personalize you know, their support. And what we are proposing is that a new uh, regulated activity is, is defined called personalized investment communication. It would be very similar to the definition of advice, except that it would stop short of allowing firms to provide a personalized recommendation, but it would allow firms to take personal circumstances into account. And we feel that this should be a new permission that is enshrined in legislation. And then the FCA builds the regulation and the permission regime. So we don't feel that anyone should be able to use this permission. They, they ought to uh, have to apply for it and go through you know, regulatory scrutiny before they're granted permission. I mean, I, I'd, I'd say that the, the advice rules in the UK, I mean, a lot of them date back to the 1980s, but we're living in really, really different times now. Um, people have very different behaviors and expectations. You know, they have better trust in digital services as well. So we feel that the advice regulations are due for an overhaul. Jimmy, what do you think of the proposal that uh, Prakash just, just mentioned? Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's it's worth exploring for for sure. I mean, I I don't know what the the, the answer is. What, what I would be slightly wary of is ending up with sort of different tiers of advice and the complication that creates for customers. But I think if there's something we can find as a an intermediate step, and it becomes a a logical journey for customers to move from a bit of help to some guidance to to some intermediate intermediate uh, definition of advice through to full advice you know through the course of their life as their affairs become more complicated then maybe that's a a journey what we need is that kind of roadmap of, of what a journey like that looks like what we don't want is a real patchwork quilt of different offerings that people find hard to understand mm -hmm. i mean jamie you make a really really good point because at the moment there's just one boundary between advice and guidance. So there's one boundary issue for firms to solve. 
Now, in our proposal, we absolutely are talking about a new category that would sit in between advice and information, and that would be called you know, guidance. And I guess what you're alluding to, Jamie, is that that now creates two boundary issues, you know, the boundary between advice and guidance, and then the boundary between guidance and information. Now, I guess our response to, you know, to Treasury and FCA on that is that if we don't solve this issue, then we're going to be leaving 40 million people in the UK without support. And you know, going back to your point, Jamie, about people gravitating towards high-risk investments and scams, you're going to continue making it really difficult for the traditional part of the financial services industry to, to get through to consumers as well. So we, we completely are aware of now turning the regime into having one boundary issue to then having two, but we feel that actually it's worth actually having two boundary issues if you can offer proper definition around the new permission. The FCA has tinkered with this boundary issue in in, in the in the near in the recent past. You know, they in in, in twenty eighteen there was work around uh, changing the definition of financial advice so that only advice which offered a personal recommendation would be considered uh, regulated. Jamie, do you think any, that any that work has had any effect to resolve some of these issues? I think. I mean, I think it served as a a sort of reinforcement of some of what we knew and a tidy up of some of the the issues you know to give it some some credit it didn't solve the advice gap though let's be honest so you know no, no intervention to date has solved the advice gap and it's it's a funny thing because you look back and some people still say you know prior to the retail distribution review the rdr we had you know much more provision of advice and many many more people seeking it in practice though there were very good advisors who gave advice and still do, but there was also a huge number of product sellers in amongst that and commission drove product sales, you know, for, for many rather than advice per se. So we've never really, it's not like the, the gap just occurred post retail distribution review. The gap was always there. What we had was product sales that, that made up some of the difference before and product sales in some cases were helpful. I mean, there are people who I'm sure are glad they were sold the product 20 years ago and, and now have a, a fund for their retirement they might not otherwise have had. But I'm not advocating a return to commission. What I'm saying is that we've got an advice gap. We haven't really made any significant inroads on that in recent years. And we, we do need to resolve it. And it will be a combination of guidance and advice. And it will take a lot more than sort of tinkering around the edges. We're going to have to get a culture change where people think it is the right thing to do to seek either some sort of guidance or some paid advice at the right points along their you know, lifelong journey. And we don't have that culture at the moment. We've got instead a kind of fear, misconception, concerns about charge, you know, uh, a lack of understanding of what advisors do and, and an unwillingness even to take free guidance. I mean, that speaks volumes. You know, we don't have... You know, why don't we have droves of people going to PensionWise willingly and saying, why wouldn't I take this kind of hour-long free guidance session? And we haven't had that. So there's a cultural issue that we need to work with to help consumers really want to do that rather than feel forced. Pakish, what do you think? 
I think the FCA are, are doing as much as they can to solve this issue, but ultimately they are constrained by legislation. They're constrained by the definition of advice, which is in legislation. And the FCA does not have control over that definition. It's Treasury that has control. And the FCA cannot pass regulation that conflicts with the regulated activity order, uh, which you know, Treasury is in charge of and where the definition of advice sits. So you know, they are trying to do a lot. And you know, on to, you know, I think you're asking Damien about you know, th their recent innovations in terms of helping providers support consumers. I mean, they, they've got a regulatory sandbox to support new innovative propositions. I think that's a, that's a good thing. They're looking into how to provide firms greater freedoms to help a customer choose a fund within a stocks and shares ISA. I think that's going to be an interesting development you know, next year. But you know, as sort of Jamie was alluding to, we feel that this is like tinkering around the edges and actually we need a new um, legislative permission actually introduced that allows firms to personalise support. We've discussed a bit about, you know, some of the um, regulatory challenges, but is uh, Jamie, some, you alluded a little earlier to the fact that maybe providers actually just have the ability to do some of the things that they could do, but they just aren't doing them. Uh, is that accurate in some areas? Yeah, I mean, again, it comes down to, you know, almost demand and supply. We, many providers, including Royal London, have over the years run uh, experiments offering guidance, not advice, but guidance to customers and sort of reaching out to customers to help them. And those who take it up find it very helpful and very useful, but we struggle still to get people to take it up. And therefore, there isn't the kind of demand that that commands having, you know, hundreds of people um, manning telephones or, or chat bots to, to speak to customers, not yet anyway, in terms of guidance. So we need to stimulate the demand. We then need to think about how does that play out in a future world? And the future world will not be, I suspect, certainly face-to-face -face and probably not by telephone either. We've got technology and Prakash, you know, mentioned, you know, the, the kind of use of data and um, the use of digital generally. I mean, we are moving into a world where, you know, the youngest generations today will only grow up with digi digital and will only expect that type of interaction with many of the, the companies that they interact with um, over the years. So if we start thinking about that environment, you know, how can we scale up the provision of both guidance and advice? And are there things we can do with technology to help advisors service more clients or more clients with less money perhaps than they currently do? And are there ways we can do that that still make it something that's, that's economically viable, commercially viable, if you like, for advisors to do? Because at the moment, there isn't that, that kind of desire. We're not seeing lots of new advisors come into the market and we're not seeing advisors necessarily expand their business other than through acquisition. So are there things we can do to help almost bring advice to more people with slightly less money than is currently serviced by the advisor market, but also at the same time try and provide guidance and push people up towards the, the, the desire for advice? And Prakash, as an organisation you work, Tizer works very closely with providers. Is there more that providers can be doing already? Is there something that can be done to sort of just push them to do more? Well, 
Perhaps, but it's a really difficult one, Damien. I mean, for the last five years, there's been this conversation between firms and the FCA, where the FCA have said, firms, you should take more risk. And firms have said, we don't want to. And I don't see that conversation changing in the next five years, unless we've, we actually have a, a legislative and regulatory solution to the problem. I mean, there are really big penalties involved if a firm makes a support service available that is construed as advice. Uh, the firm opens itself up to fines from the Financial Ombudsman Service. Firms open themselves up to reputational issues for, um, for themselves. And I think we have to get away now from expecting firms to, you know, just all of a sudden lose their risk aversion. It's just not going to happen. So I think to answer your question, I mean, maybe, you know, you'll always have innovation and, and new propositions coming out. And that's, that's fantastic. But the, the firms with the 40 million customers are your traditional firms with compliance departments, uh, with boards, uh, with risk committees. And, you know, we, we just don't see a, a big change in, in risk aversion, you know, that's going to occur in the next five years. It's a bit of a Mexican standoff. I think, um, I mean, just, just to add to it, one, one um, thought around this is that we, in the terms of guidance, I mean, building on what Prakash has said there, um, we've almost built a framework that allows you to tell a customer all the things that they shouldn't do, but nothing of what they should. So, you know, by way of example, you can tell a customer that they might run out of money if in retirement they're taking out 10% each year of their fund, but you can't tell them how much they should take out. You can tell a customer that 8% of band earnings might not be enough to pay into their pension to save over their lifetime, but you can't tell them how much they should pay. You can tell them that investing in cash over the long term is dangerous because of the inflation risk, but you can't tell them what they should invest in instead. You know, we, we've created, uh, and I'm using these points, you know, slightly uh, facetiously, but to illustrate a point, customers want to know, okay, well, if that's the wrong thing to do, what should I do? And the answer to that is you may want to seek financial advice. And then you kind of throw them out into the world to try and navigate that. And there must be something better we can do to bridge that gap for customers. Well, on that note, thanks very much, Prakash and Jamie, for your time. And thank you very much for listening and tune in again next week for the next edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.